Hello, Health Affairs listeners. I wanted to take a brief moment to talk about the Health Affairs Insider Program. Insiders get exclusive insights and access into the sharpest minds in healthcare research through our virtual events and newsletter programs. To celebrate our second year of running our Insider Program, enjoy $40 off of an Insider membership with the discount code INSIDER at 2 at checkout. In 2024, we secured a suite of health policy experts to unpack the uh, most pressing developments in healthcare with specialized newsletters on antitrust, drug pricing, uh, health policy reform and developments, healthcare spending and prices, and health equity. Uh, Make sure you check those out. Check the show notes and use discount code INSIDER at 2 to become a member today. Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. Each state is different, and the distribution amongst those states will look different, depending on how the states decide what's the best way to serve their people and their constituents. I'm your host, Alan Weil. We're recording this episode on November 12th, 2020. Today, we're talking about equitable access to a new COVID-19 vaccine once it arrives, The recent exciting news from Pfizer showing 90% effectiveness in early results raises the question of how do we distribute the vaccine once it's here? The life-saving potential of a vaccine can only be realized if people get it. Who and when will people receive the vaccine? That depends on a number of factors, including the distribution mechanism, the priorities we set for particular populations, the cost to people of receiving the vaccine, people's willingness to receive it, and more. I'm speaking today with Angela Shen, a visiting research scientist in the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She, along with colleagues, wrote a paper we recently published at Health Affairs as part of a group of papers focused on COVID-19 vaccines and therapeutics. The authors make a number of recommendations to promote equitable access, and we'll be discussing those today. Dr. Shen, welcome to the program. Great. Glad to join you here today. Well, let's jump right in. The first two recommendations in your paper have to do with assuring racial and ethnic diversity during clinical trials and being transparent in the data regarding safety and efficacy. Now, we've just heard these promising results from Pfizer. What do we know about how closely Pfizer or the FDA or any of the other companies that are working on vaccines have adhered to your recommendations around racial and ethnic diversity and transparency? Ellen, I think that's a really good question and an important question that people are looking at. The firms are trying to follow FDA guidance and the public's guidance in terms of having a clinical trial population that reflects the diversity in the United States. And so they're certainly making these numbers open and transparent. They may not be the numbers that folks want to see, but it's very difficult to gain trust in these communities and to recruit. So talk to me about the difficulty. Why is it hard to get the diversity that we need during this phase? Well, I think that there's a lot of historical context to be unpacked here. And these communities, particularly African-American communities, have a distrust. They've never been asked in, in as so much to be in these clinical trials and being asked now. There are Tuskegee-like elements that are influencing this. And that there has been a lot of backlash with African-American communities and leaders that have attempted to have and urge their communities to join vaccine trial campaigns. And they've 
gotten outrage responses from the community that parents, for example, don't want their children to be lab rats and they don't want to be experimented or tested on. Which is totally understandable. It seems like a particular challenge here where the burden of the disease is falling disproportionately on people of color. So if we can't test or reach folks who have the greatest need, sort of this is a, I don't want to call it a puzzle, it's a problem. Am I thinking about this the right way? You definitely are thinking about this way. And and I think another point that's really understated is that when folks talk about communities of color, they often associate that with African-Americans. But what about Asian-American communities where COVID deaths have been largely gone unnoticed? That Asian-Americans are overlooked in the public discourse surrounding the desperate impact of COVID. And the numbers are coming out now, particularly in communities like San Francisco and and other cities in California, where there's a large proportion of Asians, the, the, the disproportionate number of deaths are really striking. And so when we are talking about equitable access, we're talking about equitable access to all communities. So that's a really important point is that, you know, diversity is not one dimension here. It's multiple dimensions. Do the drug manufacturers have experience reaching into these communities? I mean, you said they're trying. So are they starting from a base of we've never done this before, but we know we need to? Or are they starting from we've been doing this for a while? I think in general, it's probably fair to say that there's been a historical underappreciation or underachievement in trying to recruit in diversity. And so certainly that there are strategies in terms of addressing these communities, going through trusted sources and leaders in the communities to help message that, hey, this is really important to participate because you want the data coming off the trials to reflect the uh, how well the vaccine works in these specific populations. This is nowhere by any stretch of means to say that there's a genetic disposition or risk factor to this, but it is primarily to say, as in our recommendation in our paper, is that we want the clinical trial populations to reflect what the racial, ethnic, and age, and gender diversity mix looks like in the United States. And so the best way to do that is to see what it looks like in the clinical trials. That makes a lot of sense. The The transparency topic is also, it's a tough one for me because, you know, in the abstract, no one's against transparency, but that doesn't mean it always turns into meaningful information that people can use. So let's just start with what are the barriers to transparency? Are, are clinical trial results typically made available. Uh, We got a lot of attention, of course, to the Pfizer announcement, but there are trials every day. Is this the norm to announce these kinds of things publicly? I think yes and no. It is not the norm to announce clinical trial data via press release. And so it's very difficult to assess what that means in 800 words or however many words a press release is limited to. And so people somewhat impute or imply what that means because we, until we take a look at the full data package and understand what this looks like in the discussion, we don't even really know what 90% means, 90% of effective of what. In mild disease, um, in, in severe COVID, and what those numbers look like in subpopulations. And so as best as possible, there are ways, you know, within legal guidelines to be able to share information. So for example, the government has a number of advisory committees that are public and FDA's recent advisory committee talked about the process and the procedures around how the agency might issue authorization under emergency use or under full licensure and what the 
data pieces are required in order to get that. Every month, ACAP has had an advisory committee meeting that's open to the public that talks about COVID epidemiology. That's how the disease has impacted different populations and has featured companies that are developing COVID vaccine to present some data. There are restrictions from companies being able to release certain things in the way that they're listed in the public and financial sectors. But I think as best as possible, we're doing a decent job in this growing kind of demand, rightly so, to be transparent about the process as well as the products. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. And I mean, it sounds like we have a ways to go because, of course, we're going to keep collecting data and there's going to be data even after the vaccine's out there about potentially collecting information on side effects or, or, you know, adverse outcomes, but, but it's good. I think you're right. The spotlight is on the companies and, and no one's going to take the vaccine if they don't trust it. Let's turn to another topic here, which is distribution. There's this sort of sense that, okay, you know, we find this vaccine that works and then everyone gets it and we can all go back to normal. That's sort of what, you know, people hope will happen. It's, it's a little more complicated than that. Tell me, how do we distribute vaccines in the U.S. right now? So vaccine distribution is very complicated, but we've been doing it for a number of years. And so in the case of COVID vaccine, as typical to the process in which we distribute routine vaccines, the states put in orders either to the manufacturer or to the CDC, and those orders to the manufacturers get organized in a way in which the vaccines will be distributed from the federal government to the states based on an allocation. And then the states will decide how to distribute those amongst and within their state populations in terms of where those distribution sites go, to which populations, aligned with the recommendations from the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. And so in general, it's a coordinated effort between the vaccine manufacturer, between the federal government, and between the states to get your orders, if you will, to the state level, and then distributed to those sites of administration. In one state, it could be largely to health systems and pharmacies, like as we saw at H1N1. In other states, it could be to private providers. In a third state, it could be to the public sector. And so I think the point and the takeaway is that each state is different, and that distribution amongst those states will look different depending on how the states decide what's the best way to serve their people and their constituents. So I've read that the federal government has pre-ordered some of these vaccines. When they get them, they then go out to a distribution system that's run by the states. I know a little bit about vaccines for kids, which is actually where a lot of our infrastructure is. How well aligned is that infrastructure for COVID where the burden is certainly not focused on kids at all? That's an excellent question. The Vaccines for Children program is the backbone and the platform in which we have a lot of experience in how we centrally distribute vaccine and how we coordinate vaccine orders between the federal level manufacturers and the states. Recognizing that those providers for vaccines for children are typically pediatric providers, pediatricians and family practice. In this case, with COVID vaccine, at least in this first tranche, if you will, we'll be vaccinating adults. And so adult providers typically obviously are different. And adults also receive vaccines in a number of different locations, like at pharmacies, like in their occupational health clinics, long-term care facilities. And so while the structure and the processes and the ordering is heavily based on years of experience with the Vaccines for Children program, the way that we'll be distributing COVID vaccines will look different. And in part, it's because of the 
requirements of the target product profile of these vaccines. A number of the front runner vaccines will require ultra cold storage, meaning special and different kinds of freezers and very tightly controlled cold chain requirements with really specific procedures about re-icing and and the number of times you can open the freezer and things like that. And so that's a lot different than what you typically see for routine vaccines that are stored in the fridge at two to eight degrees. And so this will require an intense amount of coordination to be able to distribute and administer those. And in these first vaccines that might be coming out, the smallest amount of doses are between 1,000 and 5,000. And so that disproportionately impacts areas in the country like rural hospitals and rural areas. It also shapes and determines how states might administer the vaccines. We're going to take a quick break. Health Affairs may be the leading health policy journal, but did you know we also send a daily newsletter? Sign up for Health Affairs today to catch our daily roundup of news, analysis, and commentary. Topics range from designing value-based payment systems to the latest on COVID-19. And it's free. Head to www.healthaffairs.org and click Newsletter Sign Up in the menu to join the premier health policy community. Welcome back. We're talking about equitable access to a COVID vaccine with Dr. Angela Shen. Let's focus on the equity angle. We've been talking a lot about how vaccines get out to people, but your paper that we published is really focused on equity. So how do we decide who gets the early doses? We're not going to have, you know, 300 million, 350 million doses available right away. What does equitable mean in the context of a limited resource and a disease that's hitting certain populations much harder than others? That's a really tricky question, and a lot of people have been opining on it. There's been a recent report that was released by the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine that's going to inform the Advisory Committee on Immunizations. We do know at this point that certainly healthcare workers or some subset of healthcare workers will naturally be uh, prioritized for frontline, followed by essential health workers, which disproportionately impacted communities of color. As I think about this list of uh, long-term care or, or adults age 65 and older, as well as adults with comorbid conditions, we're certainly trying to get at populations that are heavily impacted by the disease, mortality, morbidity. And so I think that a lot of the conversations about what equity means are very complicated and fold in structural inequities and social determinants. And so the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices will have to kind of balance this relative to maximal benefit and the core principles and ethical principles of equity also married with feasibility as well. The frameworks and allocation discussions that have been had are very much embedded in these core tenants. And so I think that as we see the first few vaccines come up for discussions and recommendations, it'll reflect addressing priority groups that have maximal benefit while ensuring or attempting to ensure and align with principles of equity. You talked earlier about distribution mechanisms. Do we anticipate that there will be sort of a national framework for allocation? In other words, those judgments that you describe about priority populations, will we be making 
national judgments about frontline workers relative to nursing home residents? Um, or will those also be state by state decisions? Again, Alan, an excellent question. So the federal government will provide guidance and issue these recommendations based on these lengthy deliberations and discussions informed by the NASEN report as well as others. And so those guidelines will be issued to states and states will, as best as possible, look in and across their state to see what their state looks like, particularly since they can do that broken down into neighborhoods. And what they'll do is they'll have to think about what's the best way to implement those recommendations within those states and what's the best way to serve those peoples within the states. And so the states themselves will be taking those federal guidelines as such as guidelines, uh, but recognizing that each state looks different and the operation of the state and implementation of, for example, Alaska is much different than that of New York, New York and New York City. And so as best as possible, the states will implement along the rubric or the guide rails that the feds have provided against those priority groups. So I'm really struck that some of the criticism of the Trump administration's handling of COVID has been that they've sort of taken a backseat to the states in places where maybe the states didn't have what they needed. But this sounds like an area where our whole system is set up around sort of state primacy. Sure, you've got federal guidelines, but you've talked a lot about state decisions, state allocation, state infrastructure. So am I getting that right, that once we get to this phase of COVID, the states really are front and center? I think it goes both ways. I think that the way COVID has been handled has heavily relied on, you know, those state leaders and those state decisions, you know, the Captain Kirk of each state, if you will. Um, but having said that, public health has been underfunded for a number of years. And so in order to execute and act on these actions, as well as engage within and among states, um, you know, that requires funding, that requires support, and that requires, to a certain extent, some federal level coordination. And so while the states are obviously critically important, in ensuring the welfare of their constituents, there needs to be still strong leadership at the federal level to coordinate all these pieces and efforts because the states don't operate, act, or live alone on a desert island in an isolated sense. And so it requires, in, in essence, both and a balance of both and a and largely leadership and coordination at both levels, but relative to their respective roles, if that makes sense. Yeah. So um, I want to get back then to sort of the equitable endpoint. We started at the equitable beginning, which is the clinical trial stage. We get to a point where we're distributing vaccines. The Trump administration has repeatedly said these vaccines are going to be free. What does that really mean? How would that work? And are, are we going to run into other problems of equity on sort of the affordability side that we just haven't even thought about or observed yet? It's a good question, and it's a question that I get a lot. And so the federal government, as they did in H1N1 10 years ago, has committed to purchasing the vaccine doses. And so this is a good sign. Um, but we know that there are gaps in insurance coverage. So 
the way that the healthcare delivery system works in the United States, it's very employer-sponsored and employer-based. And so the government's trying to shore up these gaps. So a few weeks ago, CMS issued a rule about coverage under emergency use authorization. They also let the community of payers know that we're going to cover the administration of this vaccine. So they're going to cover $16 for the first dose, $28 for the second. And, And this is notable because one, it's quite high, but two, the the second dose being reimbursed higher means that it's designed to incentivize completion of what's going to most likely be a two-dose series. Most of the candidates under review and under trials are are two doses. And so there's still going to be a segment of folks that may face some cost sharing, those on traditional Medicaid versus those in expanded Medicaid, but other population groups like the underserved are, are taken care of. What's really, I think, getting at the heart of our conversation on equity is even though these may be covered under a model or under the policy, the program and the access to this coverage might be really tricky. It's like the execution of things. So for people who might have to go to certain places and certain hours, and if those folks are underinsured or uninsured, even though we've bought vaccine for everyone, where they have to go at what times might be a little trickier for populations that don't have as much flexibility, if that makes any sense. Yeah, we also have a lot of experience where when we try to target a program at a subset, the messaging gets really complicated. So I can see if we got to a place where everyone should come in. That's a pretty clean message. But what if we're at the place where we're saying, you know, healthcare workers and people at elevated risk, I mean, how are we going to actually identify and communicate to people? We, we mean you, we want you to come in. How does that work? It's a very good question. There are perhaps ways to be targeted in some groups and as well as minimize risk. So for example, if you're talking about the first tranche or what we are being called 1A, the first groups for prioritization, which is healthcare workers, then you might hold clinics at healthcare facilities to get those healthcare workers vaccinated. When you're talking about clinics in nursing homes, because you're addressing and targeting the high-risk population, then there are ways to do this, both in terms of safety without having to turn other people away and minimizing exposure, but also being able to be a little bit more cleaner or discreet, as opposed to saying, well, you're not in this population group, we're going to turn you away. When I refer to Alaska as an example, if you marry these two examples of long-term care and the state of Alaska, um, you you may not take a four-hour flight to a specific community to just vaccinate the three long-term care facilities because you're there already. You may vaccinate a broader tranche of the population that's in a different priority group. And and that's a very state-specific decision based on the constituents and the operational limitations or abilities of that state. And so I think that while it's not an easy question to answer, the healthcare workers or perhaps nursing home example is a strategy that states may wish to take on as a means to target those populations with a cleaner messaging recognizing that this is going to be difficult. Public acceptance and understanding of how this is going to roll out is going to be difficult. How do I explain that Alan, who's not even in a priority group, got vaccinated in his state, but I didn't, and I'm, you know, at a higher priority group? 
Well, it sounds like we have quite a road ahead of us, not just to identify and uh, manufacture the dosing that we need, but also to distribute it and do it in a way that overcomes the horrible disparities that we're seeing in the burden of the disease. Any last thoughts you would give it's, uh, to someone at a state level, how they should start getting ready? We don't have a vaccine just yet, but if we think it's coming, what can someone in one of these leadership roles in the state do to prepare so that when it becomes available, they're not just starting from scratch? I think it's a message they probably know well and clear and resonates is that they need to get ready now and not wait until we know more about the specific characteristics of the vaccine. Because even though we're talking about equitable distribution and access here, I think the underpinning for this to work and stopping the epidemic or managing the epidemic is also equitable acceptance. And so as a dear mentor of mine has always said, you know, a vaccine that remains in the vial is 0% effective, regardless of this promising news that we heard this week. And so I think that takeaways to start these conversations is to build trust. And to do that, you have to communicate process. In order to do that, you need to start having those conversations now. And you can say that there's a lot of things we don't know, but here are some things that we do know. And you may have questions about it, and I'm here to answer them. Well, I've learned a great deal from the discussion, and I'm also daunted by how much work we have to do, but uh, appreciate so much. Dr. Shen, it's been great to talk to you today. Great. Thanks so much, Alan. The Health Podacy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. Jeff Byers produces the show under the direction of Patty Sweet. Brian Dobbs edits the show. Sue Ducat and Sarah Kolk help dot the I's and cross the T's with scheduling. Julia Vivalo produced the artwork. Music by Brian Dobbs and Julia Vivalo. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Thanks for listening and have a great morning, day, or evening.